Welcome to South Asia Chat, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. I'm your host, Ramita Ayer, research analyst at the Institute. On 2nd April, India and Australia signed an economic cooperation and trade agreement in a virtual ceremony. This marks the first agreement India has signed with a developed country in more than a decade. The deal will see 96% of Indian goods enter Australia duty-free and will remove tariffs on more than 85% of Australian goods exports to India. The India-Australia FTA is expected to almost double bilateral annual trade in the next five years and is hence seen as a major milestone in deepening bilateral cooperation. To discuss the agreement itself, as well as other related aspects, I am joined by Dr. Amitendu Palit, Senior Research Fellow and Research Lead Trade and Economics at ISAS. Welcome again to South Asia Chat, Dr. Palit. Thank you, Ramita. Thank you so much. A pleasure being with you again. To start off, I'd like to contextualize the agreement. Uh, could you shed some light on the trends in uh, India-Australia bilateral trade, the key sectors involved and their importance? Well, thank you, Ramita. Firstly, I think uh, it's important to note that uh, the India-Australia trade relationship uh, has, uh, to my mind, in terms of the numbers that we see around the relationship right now, these numbers are obviously not uh, as large as either country would expect them to be in a relative sense. So uh, there's a trade, uh, bilateral trade of around uh, 25 billion Australian dollars uh, the, the way one can look at the number of the goods and services trade put together. Now, this is a number which clearly has the potential to go up a lot in the years to come. And following the fact that uh, both countries will offer preferential access to each other's products and services from now on. As far as the existing trade and its character is concerned, uh, the trade is primarily focused around energy products and minerals and uh, I would single out coal as one product, bituminous coal, uh, which is Australia's largest export to India. And on the other hand, uh, refined petroleum products happen to be a major export from India into Australia. So in a sense, it's a mineral fuel energy uh, products based uh, trade relationship that we are essentially getting to see right now. But Beyond the numbers, uh, there's a story which is interesting to be looked into, and that is basically in terms of the movement of people uh, that has been happening between India and Australia in recent times. And this would uh, come under the category that we define as trade in services, so which will essentially uh, pertain to movement of people from one country to another. And uh, as we know, over the last uh, 10 to 12 years uh, in particular, Australia has become a very important uh, destination for Indian students moving outward. And that, along with the fact that uh, there has been a fairly sizable professional migration as well, has led to a situation where Australia now has one of the largest uh, growing and expanding Indian diasporas in the world. So what I mean to say is that what the numbers reveal in terms of the trade relationship might actually not present the whole context and character of the trade relationship. There are elements to it uh, which are fairly substantial, but which are not probably entirely captured by the trade statistics that we get to see. 
so Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi called the signing of the recent FTA as a watershed moment in bilateral relations. Can you tell us more about why the deal is so significant and what are the benefits in it for both India and Australia? I think it is a historic or watershed or very significant, depending upon whichever adjective you choose to define it, uh, for a number of reasons. The first is, I think, uh, the India-Australia relationship has really scaled new heights within a short period of time. Uh, even when we go back uh, 10 years down the line, uh, the India-Australia relations were there. I mean, both countries were aware of each other's existence. There were uh, movements that were happening uh, between each other. But it wasn't in any way uh, a relationship that one could compare to, to the kind of relationship that India might have uh, with uh, a country like United Kingdom, for example, or countries in Europe, or uh, let's say Singapore in Southeast Asia, or not even anywhere remotely close to what India had with Japan. So from that perspective today, when one looks at the India-Australia relationship, uh, it's very clearly understood that both countries have come a very, very long way within a very short period of time. And I would uh, particularly narrow down this period to the last uh, four years, during which there has been a remarkable boost and expansion in the relationship. So much so that in 2020, in the middle of 2020, this was around three to four months after the COVID broke out, both countries decided to upgrade their relationship should that of comprehensive strategic partnership. And once that happened, there were a number of areas which became clearly identified between the two countries as areas of cooperation. And let's uh, also recall that this comprehensive strategic partnership announcement came at a time when India and Australia were not discussing a free trade agreement. Their talks were suspended at the time. So about a year after this uh, announcement, uh, in September 2021, uh, both countries decided to commence, uh, or rather recommence talks on the stalled free trade agreement. And coming from there, we have seen the conclusion of an economic cooperation and trade agreement. Uh, it's an interim trade agreement. Uh, there will be more that will be announced to this in the years that would follow. But even within that period of time, uh, just six months, the conclusion of a trade agreement is actually historic. And I think by that yardstick, one can definitely call this historic. One can definitely uh, call it a major achievement. And this is a this is a milestone in so far as the number of goals that the India-Australia relationship aims to accomplish. And out of which there are other areas where the countries have already started begun working together. This is, say, for example, in the area of critical minerals or in the area of safeguarding supply chains or in the area of greater security provision in the in the area of Indo-Pacific. So I think uh, the FTA is really, uh, you know, in that sense, a signature achievement, which both countries would like to showcase very prominently in terms of a goal that has been achieved, uh, which is going to give businesses, industries, students, and a large number of connected stakeholders in both countries, uh, much better preferential treatment to each other. And I think, finally, it is all the more historic because India and Australia have never been on a 
to use a cricketing terminology, on a good wicket as far as uh, trade talks are concerned. They began talking trade in 2010. Uh, they proceeded on talks for some time, but they had to hold back talks because there were irreconcilable differences that arose during the talks. So given that history, it's all the more sweet and charming to discover that that disturbing history has not in any way hindered the progress towards the current FDA. And within six months, they have been able to accomplish a major goal. And hopefully going ahead, there will be more elements that would get added to the current FDA. Right. So now India has signed a host of FTAs with other countries as well over the years. Uh, this includes Japan, Korea, Singapore, uh, the ASEAN grouping, and most recently the uh, UAE. A general issue that has emerged with the existing uh, FTAs has been that imports have usually been higher than the exports. Given this, how do you see this particular agreement panning out? And are there any other challenges that you foresee? Thank you, Ramita, for asking that. I think that's a very valid question. And uh, I think uh, that is a concern that remains uh, quite prominent with respect to a large number of India's existing FTAs, as you rightly mentioned. Uh, these include the FTAs that India has signed with Southeast Asia, uh, with Japan, with Korea. And if one looks at the current uh, trade relations between India and Australia in good trade, uh, much as the volume of trade is not as large as uh, it could be compared with other countries. Uh, it is clear that uh, in the India-Australia trade relation as well, uh, India is a deficit partner insofar as the amount of goods uh, being exported by India vis-a-vis -vis the amount of goods imported by India. Now, if the deficit had been the overriding factor in choosing a trade partner, then obviously India could not have gone ahead with the Australian FTAs. So it shows that that eventually has not been a consideration. But the fact of the matter is that uh, this is where probably the Indian exporters and the Indian investors will need to sit up and take notice of the fact that this could be an FTA which offers them a considerable amount of opportunities. And it is good to make use of those opportunities because uh, Australia has been a welcoming country. Australia has uh, reached out to India with a large number of gestures indicating that it is open to doing constructive business and a flourishing trade relationship with India. Most importantly, given the current geopolitical conditions, the way we see the Indo-Pacific uh, surrounded by this particular geopolitics, Australia is clearly looking to diversify away from China. And China has been Australia's uh, largest market uh, for its exports and uh, similarly uh, Australia's largest importer has also been China. So it is an important occasion for India to actually step into the opportunity that has been created because clearly Indian products are welcome. Indian exports would be welcome. Indian investments will be welcome. Now, the extent by which uh, this opportunity can be exploited by Indian businesses is, of course, a different story. But I think the important point to be noted over here is that I see that there are uh, elements within this FTA, in the ECTA that has been signed till now, uh, which are uh, interesting and progressive. Like, say, for example, there is an effort to recognize the standards and mutual qualifications of sites. 
that should uh, enable easier flow of investments from the Indian side into Australia because when Indian industries look at Australia as a prospective market for investments, uh, they will not be constrained by the fact that if they are wanting to move people along with those investments, their people will not get affected by an issue with respect to conformity of standards or lack of recognition of qualifications. That makes the whole understanding and scenario much easier. Uh, there are already Indian industries, uh, you know, the Adanis and the Tatas, which have uh, reflected considerable amount of interest in Australia. They are working there. And one would hope that as these investments grow uh, following the FTA, more investments uh, will flourish, not just from the Indian side, but even from the Australian side. And uh, the other last point that I want to make, Ramita, in this regard is that, you know, sometimes we uh, probably make a mistake in looking at an FTA uh, purely as a bilateral trade relationship between two countries. And that's why the issue of deficit becomes important. But there could well be a scenario when Australian investments into India, for example, create facilities which enable exports from that facility to other third country markets. So what that would mean is that perhaps those exports will not get, uh, get reflected in the India-Australia trade relationship, but nonetheless, it would lead to an increase in exports from India. You know, So I think it's also important to look at uh, the relationship in this regard. And this is where we come into the whole question of supply chains and how they connect to the greater relationship between two countries. So I would assume that this FTA has come at a time when India has taken stock of its perspective towards FTAs, it has taken stock of the concerns that it has with respect to FTAs. We know the concerns that made India come out of the RCEP. Australia was also a member of the RCEP. So I think uh, both countries understand these particular concerns on part of each other. And if India has gone ahead with the FTA, then obviously the deficit has not turned out to be a prohibitive factor. Uh, thank you so much for that. So uh, I want to focus on one aspect that you mentioned earlier, which is on uh, the stalled agreements in the past. So we see that the initial negotiations for an FTA between India and Australia actually began more than a decade ago. Can you tell us more about the reasons behind which uh, the, the deal was stalled and how did the countries arrive at a successful agreement now? Yeah, thank you, Ramita. You know, I think... Uh when India and Australia suspended uh, their trade conversations uh, in 2015 after five years of uh, talking on the subject, it was mostly a result of the fact that uh, on both sides, as I was mentioning, there were issues that were discovered where uh, neither country was willing to offer as much market access as the other country was demanding. So let's say, for example, when it came to India's case, uh, Australia wanted greater market access into India for its agricultural product exports. Now, agricultural product exports uh, include a large number of things, and these uh, even include uh, items like dairy products, uh, for example, or fruits, vegetables, uh, cereals, uh, meat, uh, fish, seafood, and so on and so forth, uh, even wines if one looks at beverages. On the other side, uh, India wanted the main demand on which uh, it, it had uh, sort of gone into an issue over the negotiations was that it wanted easier uh, visas for its uh, professionals, for its students, for its workers into Australia. Now, 
there were two concerns, I think, and both the concerns converged uh, in that regard. The first is that Ormond India's side uh, relaxing protections on its agricultural market uh, was a very politically sensitive subject. And we have seen this issue uh, panning out again and again in India's trade negotiations, including uh, the time when India backed out of RC. There was this concern that India was not willing to offer market access beyond a particular threshold limit on agricultural exports. Similarly, on Australia's side, the entire question of allowing greater uh, entry to Indian workers, students, or generally applicants from India uh, was a sensitive issue as far as the domestic labor market was concerned. So I think both countries uh, could not move forward from there and they stopped talking at that point in time. And perhaps uh, the decision uh, that was taken at that point in time, though it has not been officially declared anywhere, is that since both countries were involved in the RCEP talks at that stage, uh, there was perhaps uh, an expectation that the RCEP could, in a sense, bring both countries together into a trade template and a framework uh, which would help them in tidying over a large number of the bilateral areas that they were otherwise discussing. Uh, that didn't happen, as we subsequently saw. But when the two countries came back to the negotiating table again, I think the biggest change in the conditions surrounding them was the fact that now India and Australia were negotiating with each other as confident countries, confident in each other. By the time they came back to the negotiating table, they had gathered a very big amount of trust in each other. And they realize that today they're in a position to actually talk between themselves on subjects, which might be difficult, but they have come that much of a way in their relationship, which would enable them to really constructively look at solutions, which can overcome these issues. And none of the problems are really big enough to stop them from arriving at a trade agreement. So let's say, for example, if we look at uh, agriculture, I mean, there are agricultural products which have been allowed market access uh, by India. So, for example, fruits, vegetables, cherries, nuts, avocados, uh, fruits, and a large number of Australian products. Uh, let's say, for example, seafood, wool, uh, wines are going to get uh, deeper preferential access into the Indian market. Dairy products, of course, uh, have not been included. But on the other hand, if we look at uh, the concessions which Australia has offered to India, uh, quite significant in so far as the STEM uh, product category is concerned, the science, technology, engineering, management, where Indian students and youth are going to get uh, not just the opportunity of traveling to Australia and studying there, but also getting the opportunity to contribute to the domestic workforce development over there. And simultaneously, the point, uh, Ramita, that I alluded to earlier, uh, you know, the recognition of uh, standards, the recognition of licensing processes, mutual qualifications, this would go a long way in facilitating people-to-people uh, -people connectivity between the two countries. And to that extent, it's really going to make a difference. Uh, I would personally uh, look at the India-Australia trade relationship uh, to essentially stay uh, much more focused in the future on the trade in services area. And uh, the trade in services area is actually the way to go for the future for both countries. I mean, this is not to say that manufacturing trade will not flourish between the two countries. But the possibilities of bilateral trade in services are enormous, including in areas like uh, clean tech, 
fintech, uh, for example, education, technology, uh, technical training, skill provision. I mean, these are the areas where really the India-Australia uh, relationship can go a long way. And I think for both India as well as for Australia, it's important to look at each relationship distinctly. Each relationship has certain amount of pluses to come out from it, uh, not comparable to a number of other relationships that these countries have. Uh, finally, I'd like to focus on another important aspect of the deal. So while the agreement is set to bolster trade ties between the two countries, it will also deepen strategic cooperation between India and Australia, complementing their efforts in other major initiatives such as the Quad and the Supply Chain Resilience Initiative. Importantly, uh, there is a view that the deal has come together since Quad partners aim to cut their dependence on China. What are your thoughts on this? I would agree with that uh, assessment. I think uh, the FTA really uh, would not have been possible. The ECTA would not have seen the light of day had there not been uh, the amount of uh, strategic convergence that we have seen uh, between the two countries in the, uh, in the recent past. And a number of developments have contributed to the strategic proximity. And I think uh, the outbreak of the COVID-19 and the kind of geopolitical alignments and uh, you know reorganizations that have taken place following the COVID-19 has really brought uh, India and Australia much closer into a space where they realize that uh, there are a large number of uh, common concerns that they have between themselves. And a very important among these concerns is the question of how both countries can China can react to China in a large number of spaces while continuing to work with China. So I think that is a realization and an understanding which both countries have brought on the table. Simultaneously, we have seen uh, as a result of uh, the United States initiatives in the region, the Indo-Pacific has picked up a lot of traction. And the Indo-Pacific uh, is an idea uh, since it brings together the Pacific and the Indian Oceans. India as an Indian Ocean uh, power, so as to say, uh, remains an extremely important part of the construct. And uh, we have seen the Indo-Pacific also leading to a certain, uh, you know, intra-Indo-Pacific uh, collaborations like Australia, Japan and India are working on a supply chain resiliency initiative. And you mentioned the Quad. The Quad, of course, is the centerpiece of the entire Indo-Pacific arrangements that are shaping up right now. But the other point, Ramita, I think which is important to note is that uh, in the post-COVID uh, sort of landscape, if one can define it that way, what we have seen is a great amount of engagement between what I would uh, typically call the middle powers of the world. And uh, these include countries like India, Australia, the United Kingdom, Canada, Japan, uh, Indonesia, Israel, maybe. So there's a lot of talk, conversation, uh, you know, discussion on a large number of mutual concerns, not necessarily all connected to China, but also insofar as uh, mutual global concerns are concerned, like, say, for example, clean energy uh, targets that have come out of the COPP26, sustainable development, public health. So I think in all these matters, uh, there's, a, there's a gradual recognition by the global middle powers, all of whom are large economies by themselves, 
to get formal rules-based frameworks going among themselves. And I think the India-Australia FTA is an example of that. And if we see India's current FTA engagements, uh, this pattern becomes pretty much clear that India is talking to the United Kingdom, India is talking to Canada, India is in talks with the European Union. So there is this larger collective of a global middle power understanding which is coming through in terms of bilateral relationships being worked out. And that, of course, I would say is a product of the changes that we have seen taking place uh, geoeconomically and geopolitically over the last couple of years. Thank you for sharing your insights, Dr. Palut. You're welcome, Ramita. It was a pleasure speaking to you. You were listening to South Asia Chat. If you wish to know more about our work at the Institute, visit us at isas.nus.edu.sg. You can also get updates from social media. We're on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Mm-hmm.